Well, my wife and I <clears throat> are expecting our first biological child in January. And uh, if you know our story, you know how incredibly loaded that one sentence actually is. And uh, we're going through a season of life of just being incredibly grateful and thankful uh, for this blessing. Going through a season of life, a lot of Taco Bell runs and Dairy Queen runs late at night. And just, just trying to enjoy this season because we know that for most of our marriage, we've wrestled with infertility. That years of pain and disappointment confusion, even wrestling with God, all of those doctor visits and just the, the monthly roller coaster rides emotionally, not really knowing if, if the Lord would give us the desire of our hearts. To be honest with you, there were many moments in which we were, we were just done struggling. Like we, we were wishing for a different season. We were, we were wanting to, to just be done with the pain and the disappointment. And I remember having a close friend of mine who was uh, walking uh, this season of life with me, and, and he had a conversation with me that I'll never forget. And he asked me just this one question. He said, Chris, are you wasting this season of your life? And it kind of took me aback. You know, we were serving together in ministry, and I thought, well, what do you mean wasting this season? And he said, five years from now, ten years from now, or even 10,000 years from now, are you going to look back on this season of your life and, and regret it because you're almost wishing it away? And what my friend was doing in that conversation, he was exhorting me not to waste that season of my life, not to waste the pain and the disappointment and not to wish it away. And can you relate to that this morning? Have you been through a season of your life in which you, you were tempted to wish it away or, or maybe just to waste that season? And maybe you went through a particular kind of illness or maybe you went through a season of, of not being able to find a job or maybe just a season of, of singleness and you were, you were tempted just to waste that season of your life. And I think when we go through those seasons of our lives, one of the most important questions that we can ask ourselves is, how can I live in such a way that I don't waste this season? In other words, how can I, how can I conduct myself in such a way that 10,000 years from now, I don't look back and regret how I lived? And I think that question right there, I think is the question that the Apostle Peter is, is trying to answer and trying to tackle in our passage here this morning as it relates to living as an exile. The question that Peter is going after is, how do I conduct myself as a follower of Jesus and not waste this season as an exile? I think it's an important question to address because living as a, an exiled Christian means that you are constantly wrestling with, how do I live in this world even though I'm not of this world? How can I make decisions where my values are based upon God's word and not, not on what culture says around me? What does that look like in the workplace? What does that look like in, in our marriages and in, in our relationships? How can I live out my life as an exiled Christian and not wasted? I think that's the question that we as followers of Jesus need to be asking, and it's the question that Peter addresses in our passage. Let me just remind us that First Peter is a letter written to exiles, but their situation has not been created because of changing locations. They're not physical exiles, they're spiritual ones. 
And they're spiritual exiles, not just for a season, but this is who they are. And they're wrestling with, how do I live in this culture when my true citizenship is in heaven? And so far in our study in this letter, Peter has given only two main commands. The number one we saw in verse 13, he gave the command to set your hope fully on the grace of God. And then the second command in verse 15 was to live holy lives. And several weeks ago, we looked at that passage, chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, about how important it is to to think biblically, that godly exiles think right thoughts in order to believe right promises. And then the passage that precedes ours this morning in verses 14 through 16 was centered on the fact that Christian exiles are saved from unholiness and saved for holiness. That personal holiness is a central part of what it means to be an exile. And so our text this morning, it builds on those first two commands, and Peter adds the third command in our letter, which is found in the second half of verse 17, where he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And one thing that we'll notice here is that Peter will actually build off the first two of what it means to live a holy life, conducting yourselves with a healthy fear. And with these first three commands, Peter is painting a picture of how to live and how to conduct ourselves in such a way that we don't waste our lives as exiles on this earth. He's trying to help us see that faithful exiles are marked by hope, they're marked by holiness, and they're marked by a healthy fear. And I think the truth of the matter is, is that we, we all want to live lives that matter, don't we? We all want to live lives that, that, that we're investing in eternity. So the question is, how do we do that? Like, how do we live lives that actually matter where we don't waste them? Peter's going to help us answer that question for us. And so this morning, I want to further unpack what it means to live with this healthy fear, and then look at how Peter supplies three motivations to help us live a life of healthy fear and a life of holiness. So the first one here, a healthy fear. If you were to ask somebody, just just anybody, just an average person, maybe a coworker or a neighbor or a friend, how does one live a satisfied, fulfilled life? How does one live a life where they're not wasting their life? What, what do you think that they would say? Well, I can almost guarantee you what they would not say. I can almost guarantee you that what they would not say is to live with a healthy fear. That that category of living with fear is so outside of our culture that I think it's important to know that even with these first three commands, we're moving farther and farther away from what it means to live a culturally normal life. That when you look at, at setting your hope, not on something in this life, but on something in the future, verse 13, the world looks at that and they think that that's strange. Like that's so bizarre. That's weird to not put your hope in this life. And then the second command, to live a holy life. Now, that's really strange to to say no to sin, to say no to pleasure, and to say yes to righteousness. That's that's really bizarre. But then you get to this third command, to to live with fear. Man, that is so outside of what culture would say is the good life. And I think as as we live out these commands, 
I think it's important for us to know really on the front end here that the more we live these commands out, the more that our experiential understanding of what it means to be an exile catches up with our intellectual and our theological understanding of what it means to be an exile. And so you live these three commands out, you'll not only know that you're in exile, but you'll start to actually feel like one. See, culture would say that you shouldn't live with even a hint of fear in any aspect of our lives, in our jobs and in our parenting, that your kids shouldn't fear you, in our decision-making, in all of our relationships. Fear should have no place. That's what culture would say. So, so why is Peter telling us to live lives with fear during our time as exiles? How does that help us not waste our time as exiles? Fear of what? Or of whom? Well, the way that Peter uses this word is tied directly to what we should fear, or more specifically, who we should fear. That in a moment, we'll dive deeper into the first half of verse 17, but for now, we see that Peter makes known the fact that our Father in heaven is an impartial judge who will judge each and every one of us based on our deeds. And so that helps us understand what this fear is tied to to see that our fear is really to fear God, who is our fatherly judge. One thing that we need to see in, in understanding how to live with this healthy fear is it's directly tied to what you believe God is like. That's why Peter spends our whole passage, verses 17 through 21, describing who God is and what he is like and what he has done for us. Peter's trying to connect this healthy fear with our understanding of what God is like. And we do this in, in other relationships too, don't we? Like your fear or lack of fear of your boss is directly connected to what you believe your boss is like. Like your, your fear or lack of fear of teachers and professors or mom and dad is directly tied to what you believe those people are like. And so trying to figure out what it means to conduct oneself with fear, that, that presses in on our theology and our understanding of what God is like. And Peter knew that. See, Peter is trying to shape these exiles' understanding of who God is and what he is like with this command because your theology matters. That you can see your theology and what you believe about God by living out this healthy fear in pursuing holiness. And I think as believers, that when it comes to living with fear, there are two dangers we need to avoid. At the first danger, this position says that you need to be fully gripped with an, un, with an almost unhealthy trepidation towards God to the point where you start dismissing other characteristics of God. That this unhealthy fear is one where, where you almost feel like you can't approach God that God is just ready to, to pounce on you every time that you sin. And, and you're dismissing the fact that God is love, that God is full of grace, he's full of mercy, that he's slow to anger and abounding in love. Uh, this first position is, is dangerous because having that unhealthy fear of God almost paralyzes us to even pursue holiness. And then the second position, the second danger when we talk about fearing God is the position that says that because my eternal position is secure, I can live however I want to live. That because Jesus died for my past, present, 
and future sin, then, then my holiness doesn't matter. Like God doesn't care about my holiness. And so every time I sin, I can just swipe that grace card. <clears throat> and so this position is, is also very dangerous because it dismisses other characteristics about who God is. God's holiness, the fact that God is just, the fact that God desires us to live a holy life, the, the bigness and the otherness of God. And that position also doesn't inspire and motivate us to live a life of holiness. See, I believe that there's a, there's a third way, there's a third view of what it means to live with a healthy fear with God, and it hinges on having the right understanding of God. My daughter Ellie, she turns three next month, and, uh, and my wife and I are trying to be very intentional with with making sure that she has a healthy understanding of God. We're trying to, to shape her view of God and what God is like. And it's been just incredibly fascinating observing her trying to understand God. In the last couple of weeks, she's been trying to understand like the bigness of God. And you can almost watch her mind just like explode, which, which it should, right? Like we should, you know, have those moments where we just can't fully comprehend God. But she's trying to grasp just how big God is and I think that she's really struggling with it. Let me give you an example. A couple weeks ago, I was putting her to bed, and, uh, and we always read some books with her and pray with her. And she's been really struggling with being afraid of the dark. And so I'm praying with her, and I'm asking God just to protect her, that, that Ellie would know that God cares for her. And I get done praying, and she turns to me, and she starts, like, bombarding me with all of these theology questions. Like she starts asking me, like, well, what does God do all day, Dad? And, and how is God going to protect me? And where, where is God? Like, she starts, like, pressing me on my theology. And I, I don't know if she was just trying to stall, if this is, like, a stall tactic, or if she was actually serious. And so I'm, like, trying to answer these questions. And, like, I'm almost, like, sweating. And it took me back to my ordination council just getting grilled with theology questions. <laughs> So I'm like, I'm trying to do the best that I can here, and I get finished, and it was just, it was pretty sloppy. And, and she, she stops me, and she gets all serious. And she says, Daddy, I, I don't want God to protect me. God, God is too scary. Like, can, can you stay? Can, can, you, can you protect me? And you kind of tell she has me wrapped around her finger already, right? But I was thinking about her understanding of God and how it's connected to, to her almost having this unhealthy fear of God and how incredibly important it is to have, for us to have a right understanding of who God is and what he is like. See, my, my daughter Ellie is, is missing some key qualities and characteristics of who God is. And yet, on one hand, like, God is scary, God is holy. God is big. God is just completely other. And yet at the same time, God is full of love and grace and mercy, and he's slow to anger. And so part of what this means to living with this healthy fear is to hold both of those in tension. It's to not err on one side of the other, but to have this big view of God that propels you and motivates you to living a life of holiness. See, the healthy fear that I believe that Peter is calling us to, it hinges on this right understanding of God as our fatherly judge. 
That's what he says in verse 17. It's a father who loves and cares for his children, but also a judge who cares about our holiness and our pursuits of holiness. That a healthy fear that, that knows that God's love is not dependent on our performance, but also that God desires and cares about our holiness. That it's the type of healthy fear that, resu- that results in having a reverence and an awe and, and just this, this inability to fully comprehend the bigness of God. And yet that motivates us to then pursue a life of holiness, That living with this healthy fear is living a life that pursues holiness out of a right understanding of being fully secure and fully loved by Jesus. So the question I have for you this morning is how is your life being influenced by having a healthy fear of God? That when you look at your life, can you point to something, an area of your life that has been deeply impacted by having a healthy fear of God? See, what I want us to see this morning is that having a healthy fear of God has has practical implications for how we live our lives, has really practical implications with our prayer life and how we view this book, how we pursue a life of holiness It impacts our marriages and our relationships and how we spend our money and our time and our resources. And yet on the other side of it, not having a healthy fear also has implications. That when you don't have a healthy fear, you waste your life because you're not being accountable to God. You're you're living however you want to live and you're calling the shots. See, not having a healthy fear is wasting your time on this earth. It's wasting those seasons of pain and disappointment and shattered dreams. Not living with this healthy fear is is wasting those, those seasons of your life where you really, really need God. It's wasting your retirement and your empty nesthood and and those seasons of being single and, and wrestling with infertility. See, not having this healthy fear is wasting the 10,000 opportunities that you have to grow in holiness each and every day. That not having this healthy fear is wasting those opportunities to share the gospel. It's wasting those opportunities to disciple those people that God has put on your path of life. Because without this healthy fear, you're the boss. And and living a life of holiness isn't a high priority. See, the more that we understand as Christians who are in exile, what is really on the line as we live our lives, the more that this healthy fear will actually be generated in our hearts. That we need to understand That as followers of Jesus, especially during this time in our culture, you are being watched by the world. You are being studied by the world. Like your coworkers who know that you're a Christian, they watch you. Like your neighbors who know that you're followers, they're studying you. Like your kids are watching you. Like we're being watched and studied to see if the hope that we proclaim actually works. If our hope in Jesus actually transforms us day in and day out to where we're living lives that are much different than the culture around us, that we not only know that we're in exile, but we actually live like it and we actually experience it. See, this should give us a sense of urgency 
an intentionality and a healthy fear, a fear of God that helps us not waste our lives, but it helps us to pursue a life of holiness because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, one thing I love about this passage is that Peter doesn't just drop this huge, weighty command to live a life of fear, but he also gives us three motivations for how we are to live out a life of healthy fear. And this is really, really helpful for me because as I, as I look back on just my relationship with the Lord, having the right motives for living a life of holiness has been really difficult for me. Like trying to understand that I'm pursuing godliness and I'm pursuing obedience not to earn God's love, but because I'm loved has been really difficult for me. And it's really, really important that we get our motives right when we live lives of holiness. So let me point out for us three things from this text, three motivations for living a life of healthy fear. Here's number one here. Don't waste your exile because you have a fatherly judge. Look with me. Look in your Bibles at verse 17 here. It says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now let me point out for us that 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 word if that Peter uses there in the beginning, he says, and if you call on him as father is a condition of fact, that it could be translated as since or since you call on him as father. And so what Peter is saying is that those of us who are followers of Jesus need to live lives of intentionality and live with this healthy fear because we have a father who is completely fair in his judgments, that he will judge each of us based on how we live. And so our knowledge of him as father must not dispel our fear of him as judge. When you look at other places in the New Testament, this this also uh, rings true. The Apostle Paul would agree in 2 Corinthians 5.10, where he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So as followers of Jesus, we, we will not invoke God's condemnation at the time of judgment, But this judgment will result in rewards earned or lost based on our deeds. And I don't know about you, but that reality should should generate a healthy fear and a pursuit of living a holy life. In other words, that if you've truly been caused to to be born again by this living hope, something that Peter talks about in verse 3, then you'll live like it. That our actions will match the values of our new family of God being our Father. But it's also important to know that God's love and acceptance of you is not dependent upon your performance. Like it's, it's fully based upon Jesus. But you prove that you are in Jesus by the way that you live. And so can you see the, the motivation that, that Peter gives to us in verse 17? To not waste our exile? See, Peter says that you, your life will be judged fairly by your fatherly judge, that he will look at how you spent your time, your energy, your resources, your relationships, how you use those seasons of your pain and your suffering, and he will evaluate that and reward you based on that. 
So knowing that God is our fatherly judge will motivate us to living a life with healthy fear so that we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servants. Well, not only that, but number two here, the second motivation that Peter gives to us is don't waste your exile because you have been redeemed by Jesus. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. Just knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spots. Now let me, let me just show us real quick here how Peter uses the gospel, how Peter uses the finished work of Jesus as a motivation for us to live a life of holiness and healthy fear. Let me point out for us that the verb that Peter uses that's translated as ransomed or redeemed was used in his culture to refer to the process of a slave receiving his or her freedom. See, what would take place for a slave to be redeemed was for them to deposit money, gold or silver, into the temple of a god or a goddess. And then that money would then be given to the slave owner with the thought that the god or goddess was buying the slave. And so the sum of money that was paid for the freedom and the redemption of that slave was called the price. And so Peter's words here in our passage would have really resonated with his audience as he's describing God's redemptive work. Now follow the connection with me here, that as Peter describes God purchasing our freedom, not with the price of gold or silver, but with the price of Jesus' precious blood. This, this results in us becoming slaves to God, something that he'll unpack in chapter 2, verse 16. And what Peter is saying here is that you think gold and silver is priceless? You think gold and silver is, is, is a big deal? That's nothing compared to the precious blood of Jesus that bought you and purchased you from the slavery of your sin. He's saying, look, this blood of Jesus is a big deal. And because of that, you need to live a life of holiness. And Peter is boldly claiming, look, don't waste your life because you've been ransomed. You've been redeemed. You've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. You've been rescued from, from the pit of darkness. Like those chains of sin that you were attached to have been broken free because of the power of Jesus' blood. Look, there's power in the name of Jesus. And we witnessed that here in the, in the baptisms. Like, man, didn't, didn't something move in you as you were hearing these stories of people who were lost, people who were dead in their sins, people who were enslaved to their sin, and Jesus made them alive. How? Because of his precious blood. Look, I don't know about you, but that, that thought, motivates me to living a life of healthy fear. And P Peter is saying, look, don't go back to living a life that is empty. Don't go back to living a life that is pointless, that is senseless, that is useless. Live with healthy fear. Now, Peter not only is using language that would resonate with the Gentiles here in the Greco-Roman culture, but this idea of being redeemed is all over the Old Testament. That this idea of being redeemed would have also resonated with his Jewish readers. 
In fact, this word translated as redeemed shows up over 87 times in Leviticus, Psalms, Isaiah, Exodus, and Numbers alone. And so even Peter's reference of Jesus being a spotless lamb would have triggered a connection for his Jewish audience. In fact, if you just take Psalm 34, which throughout this whole letter of 1 Peter, Peter just alludes to, he keeps coming back to Psalm 34. And in fact, I strongly encourage you that during our study of 1 Peter, just, just take Psalm 34 and meditate on it. Even try to, try to memorize that psalm because Peter just keeps coming back to it. But Psalm 34, verse 8 and 9 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Peter's going to get to that in chapter 2, verse 3. Then he says, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. And then if you jump down a few verses later, verse 22, it says, the Lord does what? The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him, or could be translated as hope in him, which is a huge theme in this letter, will be condemned. See how even the psalmist that, that Peter just depends on throughout this letter is using redemption as motivation for living a life with fear and holiness to God. Do you see the motivation that Peter is trying to connect with the gospel here? How he's using the blood of Jesus to, to motivate us to living a life that actually matters, a life of holiness? See, when Peter says to, to live with a healthy fear, knowing that God has redeemed you from bad conduct with the precious blood of Jesus, what he's really saying is fear living a life that does not make the blood of Jesus precious. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, look, fear the type of life that takes the blood of Jesus for granted. Fear that kind of life. Fear the kind of life that is not enthralled with the blood of Jesus. Fear the kind of life that doesn't scream out to everybody that Jesus' blood is everything for you. Fear that kind of life. Man, I, I love, I love this path. This is rich here because Peter is just exalting the work of our glorious Savior, Jesus. They're saying, you are a blood-bought people. You have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness. You have been given true life. So guess what? Act like it. Live like it. Live a life of holiness. Live a life with healthy fear. And for those of you who are parents, do you remember? Do you remember this moment as parents when you, when you took home your first newborn baby from the hospital? Do you remember that feeling of, of healthy fear that just came over you? Do you remember when, when you're holding this precious valuable, incredibly fragile life, and, and you just have this fear, like, what, what do I do with this, right? Like, like dads, first-time dads, like, like, they hand you this, this baby, and, and how about you? But I'm, like, holding it like a football, because I have no idea, like, what to do here. Like, what do you, but not like Andrew Luck holds a football, you know, thank God. <laughs> From Ohio, Bengals fans, sorry about that. And they're not doing too well either, so all on the same page. <laughs> but do you remember that, that healthy fear as you're holding that baby 
and, and you're trying to put this baby in, in this car seat, which, which has like 50 pages with the instructions. Like, how do you even snap this thing together? And you're driving from the hospital back to your house, going like 20 miles per hour under the speed limit, because you're just filled with this healthy fear. Why? Because you believe with all that you are that that life is precious, that that life is valuable. And you are demonstrating that truth with that healthy fear of living that out. And look, I would present to you that the same is true with the blood of Jesus. That if you truly believe that the blood of Jesus is valuable, is priceless, that it will make itself known, it will be demonstrated in you living that life of having a healthy fear. So it really begs the question this morning, is, is there an area of your life that you're living that does not make the blood of Jesus precious? Is there something in your life, maybe how you use your words, or maybe how you interact with your spouse, Maybe how you spend your money or your free time. Maybe the things that you look at on the computer. Are there areas of your life that is not making the blood of Jesus precious? See, Peter uses the, the redeeming blood of Jesus to, to motivate us to living this life of healthy fear so that we don't waste our exile. Because living a faithful life, living with this healthy fear is dependent on having a right understanding of the redemption of Jesus Christ. That the gospel, the gospel not only saves us, but the gospel shapes us by giving us the correct motivation to pursuing holiness. That we don't live a life with healthy fear to earn his love, but we live a life of healthy fear because we are loved. It's very important. Truly rescued people just never get over being rescued, and amen to that. So not only are we being motivated by Peter because we have a fatherly judge, not only that, but because of the blood of Jesus. But here's number three. Don't waste your exile because your faith and hope are the result of God's eternal plan. And look with me at verses 20 and 21. See if you can pick this up. It says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. As you see the third motivation there in those verses, Peter offers a third motivation by pointing out the fact that God's eternal plan of Jesus coming to this world living a perfect life of obedience, dying on the cross in the place of sinners, raising to life three days later, making himself known to us in order to save us and give us a hope that before the foundations of the world, God's complete program of salvation was for the purpose of your hope and my hope being placed on Jesus. Now let, let that sink in for a moment. Let me, let me, let me put this a different way. That before the foundations of the world, God chose his son, sent his son here. His son died for our sins, was raised back to life. God gave him glory. Why? For this reason, so that you and I would hope in God and not in sin. 
It's amazing that God orchestrated all of that so that your hope, the object of your hope, would be God and not in things of this world. So that you wouldn't waste your life, but that you would invest your life by hoping in God. That God's ultimate plan for us is not to waste our exiles, but to put our hope in God, living a life of faithfulness to Him, trusting in His promises. And hope is, is a major, major theme throughout this letter. In fact, we've already seen it a couple times in chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 13. But if you noticed, here Peter uses the words faith and hope being placed in God. I think the reason for that, that Peter uses faith and hope in God at the end of verse 21, is because we are saved by faith as we trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for our salvation And we live our lives demonstrating that faith being genuine in the way that we hope in God. That what you hope for spiritually is tied directly to your faith. And so our hope as Christians in exile is active. It's not not passive. It's this ongoing action of continuing to trust in the Lord, surrendering our lives to Him. Why? So that no matter what happens— No matter what happens in our culture, you're still trusting in God. No matter what happens in that doctor appointment that you have this week, you're still going to trust in God. That no matter what happens in your workplace this week, no matter what happens in school this week, no matter what happens in the election, faithful exiles have a resolve to trust and hope in God and to declare that Jesus' blood is enough for me. And the reason that Peter uses this as a motivation to living a life of healthy fear is because he knows how tempting it is to divide up our hope and our faith. It's so tempting for us to to take some of our hope and to put it in God for eternity and yet to divide up the rest of our hope and put some of our hope in our careers, to put some of our hope in our finances, to put some of our hope in our relationships or our image or our popularity, and yet Peter is calling us to live our entire hope in God. Love the way that that Ray Ortland um, illustrates this struggle here. He says that you and I are not integrated, unified, whole persons, that our hearts are multi-divided. It's like we have a boardroom in every heart. Imagine a big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, and a whiteboard. And a committee sits around the table in your hearts. There's the social self, the private self, the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, the religious self, and others. And the committee is arguing and debating and voting, constantly agitated and upset. Rarely can they come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. And we tell ourselves that we're this way because we're so busy with so many responsibilities. But the truth is that we're just divided, unfocused, hesitant, and unfree. That kind of person can accept Jesus in two ways. That one way is to invite him onto the committee, give him a vote too. But then he becomes just one more complication. The other way to accept Jesus is to say to him, my life isn't working Please come in and fire my committee, every last one of them. I hand myself over to you. I am your responsibility now. Please run my whole life for me. 
that accepting Jesus is not just adding Jesus, it's also subtracting the idols. Yeah. You read something like that and you think, how, how does that get connected with living a life of healthy fear? And could it be that you might be here this morning and, and you're not living a life of healthy fear because, because you've just added Jesus onto your life and you haven't fully surrendered to Jesus? That you're almost treating Jesus like, like just an add-on, just a tack-on to your life. You've given him a vote in your little committee, but you haven't fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. That if you're here this morning and you feel discouraged, you might be here, you're wondering, why, why am I even in church today? You might be wondering, am I even a Christian or maybe you are a Christian and you just, you just feel stuck right now. I, I just wonder if you're here today to hear these words, that God is for your hope, that God is for your entire hope, and he has demonstrated that by accomplishing everything that was needed through Jesus, that God through Jesus died the death that you, sh- that you could not die, that Jesus earned a righteousness that you could not earn on your own, that God through Jesus offers you eternal life through the blood of Jesus. And you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, can I beg with you and plead with you just to come to Jesus, to not waste your life, to not live a life of emptiness, but to come to faith in Jesus who has died for you, who has bled for you so that you can have hope and faith in God. And if you're here this morning, I just, I just wonder, where, where are you at this morning as a follower of Jesus and, and your relationship with living with healthy fear? Is this a, a common characteristic of who you are, that, that you're just so in awe of God, that you're pursuing a life of holiness? Are there aspects of your life that's not being impacted by having a healthy fear that you need to surrender today, that you need to turn in repentance and ask God to give you a bigger view of God. And Peter has challenged us in this passage to live a life of healthy fear because we have a fatherly judge, because Jesus' blood has redeemed us, and because our faith and our hope is the result of God's eternal plan. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your time in exile. Let's pray together. No, God, it seems like we can talk forever and ever about how big you are, about how holy you are, God, how much we should fear you. Lord, we thank you for the redeeming blood of Jesus that covers us, that gives us access to your presence, Lord, that we can approach you with a boldness and a confidence because our acceptance is in Jesus. And Lord, I pray for for my brothers and sisters here this morning, that because of what Jesus has accomplished, that that would fill us with a healthy fear to pursue a life of holiness. And so God, would you just continue to work even in our singing now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.